Have you ever wondered how to make sense out of your messy life or how to live in peace in the middle of a stressful world? My name is Jamie Norton, and I want to welcome you to the Making Peace and Beyond podcast, where we talk about life struggles and how to live in the peace, joy, and freedom that Christ died to give us. Today, I'm really excited and a little bit anxious about the topic we have. I'm sitting here with uh, Spencer Klein, who works with me as a counselor. And Spencer has just uh, become certified in the treatment of sexual addiction. And we're really excited about that because it's such a huge and untalked about issue. And so we're going to wade through uh, some sex stuff today. So Spencer, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you just completed? Absolutely. So uh, I've been licensed as a counselor in the state of Ohio for about five years now. Um, Just working on right now, completing up my certification as a sex addiction therapist through uh, an organization called ITAP, which is the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. It's kind of the gold standard, if you will, of... uh, sex addiction certifications. I'm a little bit biased, admittedly, but uh, it's it's been a really good program. Uh, Patrick Carnes is kind of at the helm of that particular program, and it's it's been a really cool experience to get to go through that over this year. So. Yeah, when I heard it was Patrick Carnes, I was really impressed because he was kind of the granddaddy of sexual addiction treatment yes. um, back in my day. And, and so he has been around for a long time, and I think it's really wonderful that we can have someone on our staff that is uh, particularly... Uh, gifted in that, and you are, from everything I can understand. Um, and it's interesting for me to be able to talk about sex, especially in the in the church, and, and especially at my age, because um, I grew up in a world that sex really only existed in the back room. So if you had, you had no sex education, you had no uh, real legitimate discussion about sex. It was all in jokes and, mm. and backroom discoveries and experiential stuff. But um, I remember, you know, just thinking, you know, in my day, there were no genitals. Mm. <laughs> you know, we just, we didn't talk about that. Everything was, so being able to talk about it in a way, uh, because everybody is a sexual person, everybody, uh, sex is God's gift to marriage. And we've so corrupted things that I think we do need to bring it to the light. And so I'm curious as to uh, how you got to that point yourself of really being focused on that. Sure. So, And and it's interesting, you talk about your generation sex being only existing in the back room and the non-existence of genitals. The world that we're in today has gone completely 180 degrees. (laughs) You're absolutely all genitals. Yes, (laughs) in the opposite direction because... We've got this world where sex is at the forefront of absolutely everything, just everything. And and the younger generation today, Gen Z, and I think it's Gen A now, Generation Alpha is the most recent generation they're talking about now. These kids are just inundated with the idea of sex from such a young age. Not only sex as an act, but also as a construct as our sexuality, as our gender identity, as our orientation. Um, So many kids are are just being told so much about sex. I mean, the internet, I mean, we don't need to say anything more besides the internet to just, I mean, it's, it's opened 
quite a floodgate of, of information that is going to a lot of people at a pretty young age. So it's interesting to compare and contrast backroom, you know, hush, hush, taboo education versus the floodgate that I was talking about that we're, we're in right now. So we've, we've come quite a long and alarming way in a alarmingly short amount of time, I think. That's true. I think, I think the, the onset, I mean, my world had no screens. We, I mean, we had, in the movies of my day, people slept in twin beds. That's how hush-hush it was. We, I mean, it was, um, and I just remember uh, getting into a lot of trouble because it was so hush-hush. I mean, I needed to have some education about what sex was and how it worked. And I remember the first time that someone, you know, tried to, uh, feel parts of me that I didn't wasn't allowed to feel myself mm. you know then I was I was shocked like what are you doing you know because we were so ignorant we were interested about menstrual cycles you know I thought I was bleeding to death I mean there was so much that needed to be done at that point but then it when screens came out it just went crazy and now everything is we've taken a good thing that God gave us for I think I think of sex as God's wedding present, mm. and it's and we've made it a good thing, a wonderful present into a supreme thing. We've idolized sex and and our body. You know, to idolize your body is to idolize the self. Mm. You know, and so I think we've we've done this disservice, um, and we've destroyed the beauty and the preciousness of something that uh, that God intended. And so, you know, to really look at how it's become corrupt. I remember a while back there was a, when Promise Keepers was around, there was uh, a survey done at one of the conferences about what is the, the thing that you men struggle with the most. And it was, uh, it, they had uh, work, relationships, pornography, alcohol and drugs. And I think 60% of the men there said it was pornography. You know, just that whole idea of, of sexual imaging and provocation on screen or in magazines in my day. <laughs> you know? And my first thought when you give that statistic is, really, it was that low? That's probably true. I mean, now it's like huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you speak to a really important point that particularly porn use, but a lot of other sexually acting out has just become so, so heartbreakingly prominent within the church community now. And the worst part about that isn't even that it's existing. It's the fact that none of these individuals want to talk about it or feel yeah. able to talk about it. It's, I think shame is one of Satan's, is probably the greatest tool Satan has to separate us from each other and to make us hide and become uh, separate from God, separate from each other. And sex is one of the biggest uh, attributes or characteristics that he uses to help that to happen. And as we move into some darkness there, we know, I mean, the truth is written in our hearts, and we know when we're doing something wrong. And I was saying the other day that, you know, if, you're, if you live in a dark room and there's no light in there, you can't see your mess. But when someone brings light into the room, then the mess starts to show up, 
and then there's a lot to clean up. And then you feel the shame of the mess that you made. And so one of the things that happens very quickly when somebody is into a a sexual shaming situation is that the light of love can't get to them. They 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 avoid that. Like uh, that so it it begins to really interfere with anything that expresses true love yes. and uh, expresses a relationship with God or expresses a relation a loving relationship with another person. We sabotage to protect that thing that we're hiding. And and that is a very sad thing and I think when we're in a community that that smiles sweetly and says, fine, thank you, then people walk around with this burden of, I don't know what to do with it. And one of the things I believe is that shame cannot survive in the light. And one of the things I love about what we're doing in in our community is we're making it okay to get help. It's okay to talk about it. It's okay to seek help. It's okay to go see you, to be in your group. It's okay to to, to be in the, 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 the support groups that we have that help people to manage their body in one way or another way, whether it's food, alcohol, drugs, or sexual acting out. Yeah, and I love the word you use of managing our bodies. That's that's really what we're trying to do here is to, to take... That's the interesting thing about sexual addiction is because you look at other more substance-based addictive tendencies, the, the obvious solution is uh, if I'm an alcoholic, no more alcohol, plain and simple. If I'm addicted to narcotics... No more narcotics, plain and simple. Sex, we, I mean, unless we're, unless God calls us into uh, a life of monasticism or, or something like that. Or, you Celibacy. Know, exactly. <laughs> unless, and which isn't the reality for a lot of people, especially within Protestantism, we, we got to face sex at some point or another. It, it just has to be. So, uh, managing our bodies is, is a really good way to put that. And I, I like um, the other word that you brought into the conversation a few minutes ago. You, you brought it up pretty quickly, this idea of idolatry. Because what we're looking at here, at least from my viewpoint as a... Well, there goes my, there goes my oh, notepad. Well. <laughs> uh, from my viewpoint as, as a Christian counselor, what we're really working with here when we talk about sexual addiction... A lot of people want to call it a lust addiction, which is, that's okay. That's fine. I wouldn't really describe it in those terms. I would call the root of what we're dealing with here, idolatry, and even more so than that, um, personal self-worship, elevating yourself to a position of God, because what are we doing when we're sexually acting out? When we are masturbating or when we're uh, seeking out a sex worker or when we're at the strip club using porn, whatever the case may be. The focus is, what do I do in this moment to fulfill my wildest fantasy and to make me feel the best I've ever felt? Elevating ourselves to a position that, frankly, we have no business being in. It's about glorifying God and building up His community, not our own personal selfish desires. And in that light, sex outside of marriage often is what we're doing is as we elevate ourselves, we're uh, depreciating our partner because we've lost the ability. That person now is a commodity for my satisfaction. And when that happens, that eliminates love. I mean, that is that is not a loving thing to do. And it's it, it, because it is destructive, it destroys something in that other person 
you know, to use that other person as a vessel for my own satisfaction. And and yet we call it love. We've lost the ability to differentiate between intimacy and genitality. Intimacy is about transparency. Intimacy is about seeing each other, being with each other, loving each other. And genitality is just about sex. And sometimes the least loving behaviors that we can have with each other are sexual behaviors. We're both, it's like mutual masturbation. I'm using you and you're using me and then we're going to go home and not see each other anymore. And and that is, I I mentioned to you (laughs) yesterday that we really love the ability to, you know, we need to teach our children the difference between coming together and coming together. I mean, Absolutely. it is a very, very different experience. And having been one that sought love in all the wrong places during my youth, and having having really experienced the emptiness of that, mm-hmm. uh, of that lifestyle, it, 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 it's puzzling because you don't understand why. You know, because it's always been elevated as this is something that will get you love. Yeah. When I first started into the training material for this area of of study, sex addiction, I wasn't even aware that the experience of the betrayed partner was such a crucial, integral, vital part of this work that I'm learning how to do. Specifically, and, and the thing that brought this up in my mind when you mentioned the point about using your 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 spouse or your, your, your partner as a, a, a sexually acting out partner, basically, um, mutual masturbation at that point you were making. Um, the reverse, I think, is also true because if, if the betrayed partner, and this, this is why betrayed partners getting the help that they need is, I think, just as important as the addicted individual getting the help they need because if the, uh, the betrayed partner goes into that relationship and says, well, I, I, I gotta, I gotta have sex with them. I, I gotta sexually, sexually satisfy them because if they don't, if I don't, they're just going to go to look at porn or they're going to go to the strip club. They're going to have an affair, whatever their drug of choice, so to speak is what you're actually doing in that situation. You're making yourself an acting out partner with that person. You are becoming the object of their unhealthy fantasy. Exactly, and and I think that I'm so glad you brought that point up because because the the idea uh, uh, there was many times that I was told that women weren't supposed to enjoy sex. Mm. In fact, there's a huge prejudice about that where people think that men have all this sexual stuff, but women don't. Well, women right. do, and probably in my practice, what I see is it's almost equal mm. when there's a dissatisfaction or unhealthy. Uh, dysfunctional sexual relationship in a marriage, very often it's the woman who is is being, I, I, he won't have sex with me. Mm-hmm. Now, there's mo- multiple reasons for that. One is pornography because there's no constant partner that can match all the, the little cutie pies on sexual uh, on pornography. Or it might be latent homosexuality. It might be um, that somebody has just lost their attractiveness. It might be that somebody's got high blood pressure or is drinking too much because drinking takes away your testosterone. And so men look, you know, they want to, but they can't to, you know, but, but it's like, (laughs) there's, there's, there's a, 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 a multiple reasons why, you know, males also become asexual. And so women are, are really frustrated 
but the whole when I was coming along, it was women weren't supposed to enjoy sex, and were often told you're going to have to do this. Mm. You know, this is a duty of of marriage, but you aren't you don't have to enjoy it. You know, I mean, wow. you won't you won't enjoy it. You know, and. And and so that was a mindset that a lot of women in my generation went into marriage with, is this is just something you have to do, like washing dishes, you know? <laughs> right. It is. Was that an explicit verbal communication you received, or was that an underlying theme that you, you picked up on? It was, there were many, I did not receive it personally, but there were many, I, I received it non-verbally, <laughs> but, yeah. but, there, but there was there were many people around me who, who re- verbally were told that. Wow. You know, you're not going to enjoy it, but you have to do it. And, you know, again, if sex is God's wedding present, he intends for both of us to enjoy it. Yes. I mean, I think your marriage is your secret garden. You can do what you want in your garden. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it is. But it, it there's a huge difference between sex for the orgasm's sake and sex for love's sake. Exactly. And that's another major component of what we're trying to do in working guys who are addicted to sex through recovery is we've, they've become so focused on the orgasm as, as the source of personal gratification, self-medicating is the term that we use. Uh, that's when, when there, when there is an emotion, that's what we turn to. When we're happy, we masturbate. When we're upset, we masturbate. When we're, when we're angry, when we're scared, when we're confused, whatever the case is, all these different emotions, that's that because we don't know how to deal with these, these di- different, confusing, complex emotions. So what we're really looking to do is getting these guys out of isolation, out of the, behind the closed doors, you know, what happens in, in the, the privacy of, of their own room or whatever, and saying, okay, let's, let's truly connect with others, not just sexually. Let's get you in a group of guys with recovery. Let's get you reconnected with with your spouse if if the spouse is willing to continue the marriage with you. Let's get you plugged in in counseling. I mean, even just the counseling relationship in and of itself. Here, s- sit in a in a you know a room one on one with another individual. Sit on their couch and tell them some of your deepest, darkest, most regrettable incidences in your life. And get yourself reconnected with yourself. Yes. I mean, because you're disconnected yes. from your emotional self. You're That's disconnected it. from your relation, relational self. And one of the primary symptoms of any addiction is affect intolerance. Yep. I mean, whether yep. at, at, whether it's painful emotions or celebrative emotions. I mean, if you get too high or too low, it triggers that, I don't know how to deal with this. There's an anxiety that comes with that that takes you to whatever your drug of choice is. If your drug of choice is masturbate, if your drug of choice is alcohol, if your drug of choice is cleaning your house, you know, it, I mean, if you have a an addictive or compulsive behavior mm-hmm. at a certain level of affect, it's going to trigger that. Yes, and and so learning to uh, modulate your emotions, manage your emotions, is is a part of any recovery. Uh, to manage life on life's terms, to be able to. Uh, show up, you know, for for life itself, which is filled with, you know, wonderful things and painful things. And so, learning to to uh, deal with that, talk about that, process it, and so much of what makes life work is the ability to talk about it. Right. 
to put it into words. Words are huge, and to be able to put things into words helps us to begin to to be able to manage our life in a whole different way than maybe we ever learned to do it. And so if you grow up in a, in a place where you were never taught that you had a right to have your emotions, that you had a right to have your needs or limits, then it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work to go and uh, learn those skills. I mean, because life skills just aren't there. Problem-solving skills aren't there. We control, fight, run. Yep. <laughs> you know? yep. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the idea of the compulsivity of this behavior, because I, I, I neglected to, to bring this idea up, up front. There, there's some folks, maybe less so, being that this is a more explicitly Christian podcast, and so a lot of people are going to have the same ideas about sex and sexuality, but I'm not discounting the fact that someone listening to this could take a more sex-positive approach and say, hey, what's wrong with porn? What's wrong with masturbation? Uh, you know, what, what's wrong with, why are these labeled as acting out behaviors? The key here for the sex-addicted individual is that compulsivity. What you're going to really want to do, uh, if, if you're wondering about, you know, how, how does sex become addictive, you're going to want to go on Google and search the World Health Organization's um, addiction criteria and if you can look at those 10 criteria that they have on their website and say, yeah, you know, I, I can't control it. I, I know it's bad for me. I want to stop, but I can't. It's damaging my relationships. I do it for longer periods of time than intended over uh, days, weeks, months, etc. That's what we're mm-hmm. talking about when we're yeah, talking about... Yeah, I do it about, in spite of life-damaging consequences. Yes, yes. I do it to it, when, it, when it threatens everything I love, right. I, and I'm preoccupied with it. Yes. You know, I, I, I get... So that's what I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I think about doing it. I do it. I think about what I, what I did, uh, but and then I think about doing it again. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a, a, a preoccupation with that. And I think I, I'd like for you to mention... Um, just how pornography becomes an imprint in your brain. So that image is going to be there whether you're looking at it or not, yes. which is one of the bigger dangers is the the image is already imprinted in your brain. So I'd like for you to hear what, what you'll, you have, uh, you think about that. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a huge biological component here. I'm, I'm thrilled that you brought that up because the more we're looking at this, this highly stimulating, frankly, unrealistic imagery, the higher our threshold or our tolerance is going to become for the regular everyday things that should cause us pleasure and excitement. We're so used to getting such a high dose of dopamine, just like for any other addiction, we're looking at more of a process addiction here through the behaviors that we do getting dopamine versus something that we actually put in our body. Uh, dopamine being the the neurotransmitter that makes you feel good and makes you enjoy things and makes you high yes yeah there's a really good book called The Dopamine Nation exactly that talks about that in a a really good way it's a really easy read it's a good book yeah and talking about that um, biological brain imprint that that you mentioned before there's even been studies that have shown that if if a guy or if an individual I should say if an individual is uh, used to seeing some kind of object or physical stimuli at, near the computer or device that they use for their pornography behavior. Let's just say, for example, that someone had a, a microphone like this right next to their computer. And every time that they went to go act out, they their eyes crossed over this microphone. Sooner rather than later, just looking at this microphone is going to cause 
the physiological stimulation and arousal that we see when we start to look at the pornography and acting out type behaviors because the imprint, the two things are so interconnected. And so we've got a lot of neuroplasticity, brain biology type stuff going on here because the brain just, it, it, it's such a beautifully adaptive thing that it's going to maladapt to this stimuli that we're talking about. And fortunately, we can readapt. Yes. I mean, I think we live in a, 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 a world right now, especially in the, the world of traditional mental health, and which I have some thoughts about, but <laughs> <laughs> where we're told that we can't heal. You know, right. you've, you've been traumatized. You'll never be better. You know, the brain, the neuroplasticity of the brain. And when I, again, I mean, I keep going back to when I was young because that was a long time ago, and it covers a lot of ground. But um, we were told that you, by the time you were five years old, your brain was formed. You know, I am what I am, and that's all that I am, like Popeye. Yep. But what we know today is that the brain is constantly reformatting itself so that we can heal. You know, one of the things that is interesting to me is that science is proving Scripture and that if Scripture says, you know, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You, you know, focus on what is good, pure, and true, and you won't be anxious. You know, you can be a new creation in Christ. I mean, there's so so much that we have that is now being proved yep. by science because we know that that's true. You, your brain can reformat. You don't have to live in, in your history. You don't have to live in your addiction. You don't have to live in your trauma. You know, there is there is healing, but healing requires number one being with people who know that it can happen, but also number two to be able to put into words and to be able to grieve, to be able to go through that process of of adapting to change and integrate loss and grieving the thing that helped you to survive all those years. A lot of times, people's compulsive behaviors are actually also things that. They did in order to survive really difficult situations. And getting out of that uncomfortable comfort zone takes courage and risk. And and that's why we need to say it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to reach out and talk to somebody who has been there, somebody who has who has who knows how to work with it like you. Um, and to really, you know, seek that that healing, you know, that is so possible. I, I feel so sad. People ask me sometimes, how in the world do you do everything that you, how do you sit there with people's pain all day? And I'm like, what a privilege that is. When I was in pain, nobody was out there. Hmm. I didn't know where to go. And to be able to be with people, what's more painful for me is to go into a grocery store, a church lobby somewhere, and see people walking around all tense and uptight and angry and closed down and avoiding eye contact, you know, and 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 just wanting to say, wait a minute, there is a way back. You don't have to live in that. Yes. And the trauma component that you alluded to is just a huge piece of what we're looking at here when we're talking about the sex addict. I think about uh, the point that you made of uh, the behaviors that we do being adaptive in the moment to deal with the things, the, the unfortunate, the traumatic, the heartbreaking, the terrible things that we're, we're faced with in our life. And I, I think about um, stories such as uh, parents who were just completely closed down emotionally and, and unavailable to their kids and, and 
the the young boy, five, six, seven years old, didn't really have any idea or concept or understanding of sex. And then all of a sudden he's looking through the JCPenney catalog and gets to the lingerie section and, and something just lit up inside of his his being and he didn't know what it was, but he knew he liked it and knew, he knew he wanted more. Uh, I think about stories that you hear of, of parents who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, almost uh, excessively open sexually, where, where mom will either walk around naked or in her underwear around the house. Or, or dad. Or dad. <laughs> uh, uh, Although y'all are not as attractive as we are. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the, the emotional enmeshment that can come into play there, we've, we've got the idea of emotional incest, if you will, kind of coming into play of, of becoming a surrogate spouse to your parent, not in a sexual way necessarily, mm-hmm. but that emotional need. And so a lot of this is where we see this, this acting out, this, this numbing out behavior being a- adaptive in the moment. It's, it's what the person can figure is the best response that they can possibly find to deal with or medicate with the situations that they're, work- they're going through at that time. I think closely associated with that are kids who have been incested phys- sexually or sexually abused. Absolutely. Um, who tell somebody and, and they say, oh, they wouldn't do that to you. And so most people will tell one person. And when that person denies it or... T- thinks they're lying, they'll, they won't. T- I had a woman come to one of the Making Peace and Beyond weekends. She was 83 years old, and she said, I was sexually abused as a child, and I've never told anybody, and I just want to talk about it before I die. Wow. And I was so sad for her, and I was so glad that she did that, you know, because it, it, but to carry that kind of burden by yourself was something that is not even ever your fault. You know, it is never a child's fault when somebody abuses them sexually or physically. You know, it is always imposed shame. It belongs to someone else. And to be able to give that back is such a gift because— you did nothing wrong. There is no guilt and there is no shame in that kind of thing. But one of the things about being sexually abused is that you 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 learn you don't learn sexual boundaries. And so whether you become a perpetrator or whether you become a constant promiscuous person, it's it has to do with not feeling like you have the right to control your body or to set boundaries with your body to say no. You know, and 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 to at a certain again a certain level of emotion, the boundaries just go away. You know, <laughs> I worked with a physician one time who was uh, who went to a lot of strip shows, and he fell in love with one of the strippers, and so it, the, the result of that was that I got. Uh, a lot of sh- people who worked in the strip joint were coming to mm. t- to see me, and, and it was, you know, and and so I, I got a real education about some of the mentality there. Yes. But one of the things that was very common in the in this situation was uh, the power of sexual provocation, you know, mm-hmm. and but in the stripper situation, there was so much power that often were sexually abused women mm-hmm. who were abused as little girls and had no ability to prevent it or say no. But in this situation of stripping, uh, they were able to shake everything yep. in your face, and and yet the, the, the viewers could not reach it. Yes. And, and there was a lot of strength in that. You know, um, but there were also a lot of single mothers trying to support a child. So it yeah. wasn't... 
I mean, it, it, there, I think there are all kinds of ways that people get into what they do. But it was interesting to me the just sort of the delight in being able to to say no. You know, yes. In a in a real way. Yeah. Because Bruto over here is going to get you. <laughs> you and know? the power dynamic there that that you you bring up. Uh, we've we've talked about this before in no uncertain terms. This this concept <laughs> of, <say> <laughs> of eroticized rage is, is a is a huge thing mm-hmm. that we we look at here in the sex addiction world. This idea that all this this emotion, this this nasty, ugly stuff that I just don't want to deal with, is coming out. Uh, in my sexually acting out behavior. I don't know what to do with the anger. So whether on a a conscious or an unconscious level, you're going to show them, you're going to teach them a lesson, you're going to prove to them just how much you damage you can do through your sexually acting out behavior. So. Right. I had never heard the term eroticized rage before you said it. And it is just such a wonderful way of expressing yes. what so many people are involved in. Yes. You know, and, and and how sad it is because again, you're taking that amazing precious gift that God gave us for procreation, for marriage, the the his wedding present and just smearing it in mm-hmm. anger and rage. And that is so sad to me. Yes. And when you were talking about the physician who fell in love with the uh, with the dancer, it, it brought to mind something that I really want to hit on here, which is kind of it's it's overlapped with sex addiction. It's not exactly the same thing, but we also talk about love addiction. So less focused on the sexual acting out behaviors and more focused on deep, uh, almost codependent emotional attachments. Uh, with the people in our lives, falling very deeply for someone very, very quickly and going from one relationship to the next, to the next, to the next. And and we see that a little bit more um, diagnosis-wise in women over men, but we do see it in both. And, and so that's another important factor for us to take a look at is how are we handling, what are we calling love? How are we handling our love relationships? What does love in a healthy way look like? And how do I express that authentically? And th- this can apply for both sex addicts and love addicts. How can I express love in a healthy way to the people around me in my life? And uh, that's and and I think we've lost so much of that. The whole idea of the fruit of the spirit, a whole lot of of Corinthians, you know, kind, patient, you know, building someone up, encouraging rather than tearing down and using. I mean, it's listening, seeing, yes. hearing, you know, being able to hold precious God's precious creation, you know, and being Christ to that person, you know, as much as possible to to hold them in esteem and. And, you know, that falls completely short in both love addiction, which is about control. Yes. You know, because when I'm, if, if I'm addicted to you, I'm going to be afraid of losing you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to try to control what I cannot control, and it will start to control me. And so I will just try harder, so I'll become jealous. I'll become frightened when you have a life outside of me. Yes. I, 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 uh, um just had a, a situation with someone close to me where uh, someone was totally, you know, self-destructive and other destructive in the thought that that person might leave because now that person, I mean, it's like super codependency where mm-hmm. everything in you is threatened if that person is going to walk away. Uh, you won't exist because everything is about that person. And I think that that it, it is it is, again... You mentioned it happens very quickly, 
and it's like, wow, I feel like I've known you forever, yes, and I feel like I know you yes. so well, and I feel like I die that's without language, you, yep. and I feel like we've always been together, and that's because you've had this fantasy in your head about a relationship that would make you okay, that would make you well. Yeah. And so you see somebody, you take somebody's body, some poor soul's body, mm-hmm. and try to shove it into your fantasy of relationship, and then you become totally dependent on that because your well-being is attached to a human being. And when your well-being is attached to a human being, you're in trouble. Right. And when we're talking about sex and love addiction, it's it's a compare and contrast. I, I love the way you put it, talking about uh, being living in the present moment, uh, really listening and caring and feeling and loving. What we're talking about here, the compare and contrast is living authentically in the present moment versus living inauthentically in my fantasy world. Because if, if we've got this sort of addiction going on, love or sex, we are just living 100% of our lives in fantasy world, whether it's thinking about the porn that we looked at, thinking about that most recent sexual experience, thinking about how we're going to get to the next sexual experience, mm-hmm. thinking about uh, what we want, what's going to really satisfy us, thinking about the relationship we want, and living inauthentically because we're living our life in duality, especially, in, especially, especially, especially in the Christian context that I'm fine, thanks. How are you culture that you were talking about <laughs> at church? Stand up, sing your worship song, sit down, open your Bible for the one time during the week for 30 minutes while the pastor preaches, close it, and then it sits on your shelf again. And then the rest of the week, you're acting out with porn. What are we doing? Yeah. What I are mean, we doing? God's not fooled. No. I think he knows. No, like you said, got to bring it into the light. That doesn't mean that. Uh, I love the fact that modern Christian culture is becoming more open to and accepting of the idea of mm-hmm. sex addiction and really bringing that into normalization. Mm-hmm. The next step is going to be, and, and we're, we're seeing it in the process with programs like what we have here at Grace with Seven Pillars and Sexual Integrity 101. We, what we need is the educational component of the fact that, frankly, unfortunately, this isn't just a boom, you're healed type scenario. Not discounting miracles. Miracles can and do happen. But if we're looking at it in the biology that God created, there is some pretty significant work to be done. This isn't just a simple pray the porn away type thing, splash you with some holy water and send you on your way. No, you're, we're setting these guys up for failure if we exclusively make it a spiritual issue. It is spiritual, absolutely, but it's biological, it's emotional, it's psychological, it's trauma, it's attachment, it's all these things combined into one. Exactly. And I think, you know, I I often say God loves the person he made. Yeah. And he made us in his image. And he he's the one who gave us sexuality. He's the one who who gave us the need for each other. You know, so much that you know, so we need to just trust that if I become my authentic self, mm-hmm. I am lovable. I am already loved. You know that I am precious and I am secure. So I'm really glad that we were able to sit down mm. and talk about this today Me because too. it is such a it is such a lack that we have, and. And I, I, uh, I really, really am grateful to be working with you, and I'm liking all the stuff that you're doing, and say so thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. We just are always glad to 
be here with, I'm glad to be here with different people. And if you did like what we did, then we love your comments and check us out on other social media. We are on TikTok at Making Peace and Beyond. We are on Facebook. We're on Instagram and there are other podcasts, but please keep in touch and I hope you'll join us again soon. God bless you.